This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. Hello, and welcome to the May 20th, 2022 episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. On the date that this show is being published, I'm not really in Denver, I'm actually in Chattanooga for my first race of the 2022 season. I last towed a start line in December of last year in Indian Wells, and I dare say that while it has been a nice five months of recovery and rebuilding, I'm kind of excited to get back to a start line. Uh, In Indian Wells, I wasn't exactly in the best form, given coming off of Ironman Indiana and, well, (laughs) shall we say, a rather luxuriating and relaxing vacation over Thanksgiving. This weekend, I hope to be in a little bit better shape. Well, whatever this weekend brings, I will just be happy to be out with some uh, 3,000 or so of my friends enjoying the atmosphere and happy to participate in the sport that continues to give me so much. For many, of course, racing began a little bit earlier this year, and for a lot, the big event took place just a couple of short weeks ago in St. George. Now that we've had about two weeks or so to think on it, I don't really think that there's any way to avoid the acknowledgement that the race in Utah lived up in every way to all of the build-up. The course proved, of course, as visually spectacular and difficult as everyone predicted. The racing was simply remarkable and exciting to watch, certainly on the men's side. And by all accounts, it was very well received by all participants as a very worthy event for a world championship. Personally, I kind of find it hard to imagine that going forward, the race will be as permanently ensconced in Kona the way it was previously, given everything that went down on May 7th. Furthermore, now that the event has actually happened, I almost feel as though if you listen very carefully, you can hear the beginnings of cracks in the resistance to change that was so strong leading up to this event. Now, I don't think this is so surprising. Until you actually do something, everyone, you know sort of pontificates on how terrible change is and how, you know, awful it will be if you even consider it. But then, when you actually do it for the first time, and it's not so terrible, and in many ways actually an improvement, change doesn't actually seem quite so terrible anymore. I still think, of course, that the race will retain a very important and permanent link to Kona. Either in the way I have suggested, with uh, the men or women racing there every year and and the other sex rotating on an alternating basis yearly to other locations, or much more likely, the event itself will just rotate, with Kona being being one of the fixed locations that the race will return to every two to four years. Whatever they do, I think that the two-day event that's taking place this year in October is going to be here to stay, and that's a big win for everyone. It means more slots to the big race and a day for the women to shine on their own, so I uh, am certainly very supportive of that. As for the race that just took place earlier in May in St. George, my man Lionel Sanders was as amazing as I had hoped he would be. 
being really disciplined on the bike and having an incredible run. But unfortunately, he just couldn't match the mastery of Norwegian Olympic gold medalist and all-around phenom Christian Blumenfeld. Now, I have a total love-hate relationship with Blumenfeld. I love that he is so incredibly amazing on the course, and at all distances for that matter. He's just an absolute superstar athlete. But I kind of hate that he dispels all of the notions that I have about why it is that I personally can't perform at anywhere close to his level. You know, I can't run that fast because of how I'm built. I can't get nearly as arrow as these guys because of how I look. My body type, for example. But look at Christian. He's got to be the most normal human being, normal-looking human being, who is also a professional triathlete that I've ever seen. He's kind of a little bit stocky, almost thick in a way around the chest and midsection, and yet the guy is just blistering fast on both the bike and the run. Simply incredible. And with his ascension to the top of the sport, all of my excuses for why I can't do it are clearly now moot. Simply, I'm just going to have to work harder. And obviously, he's not going anywhere, so I think that love-hate thing is just going to have to become more and more love. On the women's side, it was kind of a race of redemption of sorts for Daniela Reef, who dominated from wire to wire, although it was kind of a little bit odd that everybody was so eager to kind of dismiss her and kind of call her career prematurely closed. The woman had won several races over the past couple of years that were interrupted by the pandemic, but because she wasn't as dominant as she had been in the years leading up to it, people seemed to think that she was done. Well, she asserted in no uncertain terms that this was not the case on a day where she absolutely destroyed the rest of a very, very talented field. It was really nice to see up-and-comer Kat Matthews have a terrific day just behind Daniela, and the ageless Anne Haug with the fastest run of the day rounded out the podium. A couple of fresher faces were also up there, people that I think we're going to hear a lot from in the future, but also noted that previous podcast guest Sky Munch finished fifth, and my friend Laura Siddle, who's also been on the podcast, had a wonderful day, finishing seventh. So all in all, it was really a great day of racing, and I'm interested to see what WTC does in the future after Kona event in October of this year. Will it stay? Will it go? I think that discussion is going to be a lot more interesting and probably a lot less contentious than it was prior to May 7th. On the show today, I'm going to look at something that's been around for a long time and periodically pops up as a purported means of improving your health. You may have heard of the concept of alkaline water, though if you haven't, its proponents would like nothing more than to tell you all about how wondrous it is. Well, what's the deal with this stuff? And is it anything close to as miraculous as some would have you believe? I take a look at the claims and the reality, and that's coming up in just a bit. Later, I'm joined by veteran professional triathlete Didi Griesbauer. Didi has been in the sport for more than two decades and continues to have success at the 70.3 and Ironman distance. And more recently, she transitioned to even longer distances with a 24-hour time trial world record and her first ever Ultraman that naturally she both won and set a world record in. Well, Didi slowed down just long enough to chat with me about her route to our sport, as well as her ability to be successful for so long, among other things, and that is coming up in a short while. 
And if you enjoyed that interview with Dee Dee, and I know that you will, you may be interested to know that last week I released a bonus episode for my Patreon supporters with even more discussions with her. That conversation, along with others with the likes of Joe Friel, Sky Munch, Laura Siddle, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, and many others, are all available right now on a private feed available only to Patreon supporters for about the price of a cup of coffee per month to anyone who signs up. And now, while supplies last, subscribers at the $10 a month level also get a Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today, see what the hat looks like, and become a supporter so that you too can get access in this, to this awesome thank you gift and to all the interviews that are there. The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thanks as always in advance just for considering. Most of the time on this podcast, I focus on medical and science subjects that are pertinent to endurance sport and triathlon. For the most part, there are plenty of claims being made by lots of product makers to keep me busy in that regard, but from time to time, I do like to stretch my legs a little and move beyond the limited scope of just endurance sport and address some of the things that are marketed towards people as panaceas for their health and well-being and pretty much all that ails them. On today's episode, I'm going to be looking at one such product, and that is alkaline water. Alkaline water is one of those things that you likely have heard of at some point and may have wondered what the fuss was about before moving on to the next ad in your social media feed. But alkaline water is like a bad penny. It is continually turning up and always seems to be associated with new and more fantastical claims each time you see it. So I thought that it was high time that I took a closer look at this stuff to see what exactly it is how it's supposed to work, and whether or not there is any science to support any of the claims that are being made. Now, first and foremost, we kind of need to do a very basic primer on pH. And for those of you who know about chemistry, yes, that was a very much intended pun. Liquid possesses a level of acidity that is determined by the concentration of dissolved hydrogen ions within them. Liquids with very high concentrations of hydrogen ions are more acidic than those with low concentrations. The measurement of acidity is on a scale that is referred to as pH that runs from 1 to 14. And pH is the inverse of concentration, such as, there, such as very high concentrations of hydrogen ions give you a very low pH. So solutions with a pH of 1 to 6.9 are considered acidic, or acids, while those of 7.1 to 14 are called bases. 7.0 is neutral. The opposite of an acid is a base, and the opposite of acidity is alkalinity. So the higher the pH above 7, the more alkaline a solution is, and the stronger the base. Most water, as it comes out of the tap, is already mildly alkaline, with a pH of 7.4 or so, and that's because of the presence of minerals within the water. But there are natural sources of basic water that comes from springs that run over rocks and so gather higher concentrations of minerals in it that can have pHs as high as 8 to 8.5. And there are artificial means to increase the alkalinity of water even further to as high as 9 or so. And these waters being sold are what are consistently referred to as alkaline water. So water that has pH of around 8.5 to 9. Now, one of the main purported benefits of alkaline water is that it can neutralize acidity in the body. 
Other claims include that alkaline water has anti-aging properties via liquid antioxidants that absorb more quickly into the human body, colon cleansing properties, it supports the immune system, improves overall hydration, skin health, and confers other detoxifying properties. Alkaline water has also been suggested to promote weight loss and to confer cancer resistance. Now, if you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, you know that I have proselytized endlessly that when something promises to do all things, it likely doesn't do any of those things particularly well. So we're going to see that as we get deeper into the weeds on this product. Now, it isn't entirely clear what any of these claims are actually based on, as there is almost no scientific experiments that I could find anywhere in the medical literature to support any of them. And as best as I could tell, various savants have suggested that alkaline water can do these things, and other people have just accepted this to be true and continue to propagate those statements. Still, as I've said once before, and actually more than once before, not everything requires evidence to prove that it works. Sometimes things are just obvious. For example, I have never encountered a study, randomized, controlled, or otherwise, to prove that jumping out of an airplane is better with a parachute than without one. But I'm pretty sure that given the choice, no one would decline the parachute because of a lack of any scientific evidence demonstrating efficacy. In the case of alkaline water, though, it isn't really quite that obvious, and the claims are pretty bold, so I would make the argument that evidence here would be a good idea, rather than just accepting what is being said, because what is being said sounds very much like a Mikey likes it situation. I'd feel better if I had some understanding of what the biological premise was for how this was all supposed to work. Remember, one of the basic tenets that I always ask you to hold to a product claim to is biological plausibility. For example, if a product claims to be able to do X, then there has to be a way to biologically explain how the product accomplishes that. For alkaline water, there really is no such plausibility for any of those claims. Instead, it's kind of a bunch of hand-waving. As best I can tell, the people who are selling this stuff want you to believe, as I said earlier, that alkaline water, quote, neutralizes acid in your bloodstream, end quote, and that this somehow leads to all of the miraculous effects that the product is suggested to be able to make happen. Now, there are numerous problems with this hypothesis. I've spoken here many times about the concept of homeostasis. Basically, that concept is that we have all manner of physiologic systems in our bodies, and all of them work together towards maintaining a constant internal milieu in our bodies. So, for example, we have systems that control temperature, others that maintain electrolytes in a very tight range, and still more that ensure our hydration status is always in a very narrow range, and that's just a few examples. We also have numerous complex systems both within and outside of our cells to very tightly regulate pH. In fact, pH is one of the most tightly controlled variables of all. And the reason for this is that many biochemical and enzymatic processes are dependent on operating in a very narrow range of acidity, or pH. So when a person drinks alkaline water, most of that slight deficit in hydrogen ions, or basic, or alkalinity, is neutralized in the highly acidic environment of the stomach. Though, I will concede, if you drank enough of that water, you would eventually absorb some of it and potentially have a modest impact on the blood. But there, there are powerful buffering systems, and eventually the kidneys 
also would work quickly to make sure that any such effects on the blood were completely erased so as to maintain the normal internal milieu in its usual state. Now, I mentioned that the advocates for this stuff talk about neutralizing acidity in the blood. Well, it turns out we have lots of acids in our blood, but those acids are normally continuously buffered by systems within the plasma and within our cells. But our bodies tolerate acidity actually quite well. We know that although the normal pH for a human being is about 7.4, we could tolerate acidity all the way down to about 6.6. You'd be very sick if you had a pH like that, but you actually would still stay alive. You'd be fine. We don't tolerate alkalinity very well. Alkaline ranges higher than 7.5 start to result in significant illness and impairment of physiologic functions. And so our bodies react very aggressively any time the pH rises above 7.45 or so. And it does so by changing the way we breathe, because carbon dioxide is how we neutralize pH. So the second you start to see an increase in alkalinity, the first thing that happens is you decrease your breathing rate to hold on to carbon dioxide. So any impact that alkaline water could be purported to have is offset almost immediately by the fact that the body very, very tightly controls pH in a 7.4 or lower kind of range. Okay, so alkaline water has no clear biologically plausible means by which to act and no great science to suggest that it really does anything at all and yet it's still out there being actively promoted and people are buying it. So what gives? Well, while there's no good science, there are some small studies that I came across in the medical literature, and they're all very consistent. Alkaline water gives no observable benefits of any kind. However, in some of the studies that have been done, authors point to things that are kind of hard to measure and therefore kind of hard to refute. And by that, I mean very specific metrics without observable differences in patients that they then point to as saying, well, look, you know, theoretically, alkaline water does this, and therefore it must be good. For example, one study reported that participants who drank alkaline water said they slept better over the course of the study, though the study was not looking for that outcome specifically and didn't even measure that, so it was a subjective report. Another study suggested that rehydrating after exercise with alkaline water led to improved rehydration rates compared to normal water, though no actual benefits could be found with this, and there was no explanation for why alkaline water would rehydrate better than regular water either. Finally, a last study suggested that alkaline water improved metrics of aging in the cells of mice, though what this meant, and whether or not this had any observable benefits, was not completely clear. Of course, this hasn't stopped proponents from shouting from the rooftops that alkaline water is an anti-aging, sleep-promoting, better hydrating drink than anything else out there, and that it prevents cancer or treats cancer, I'm not even sure anymore, and that it, it can help with weight loss. Both of those things have been completely debunked. There is no evidence whatsoever that it has any cancer treatment benefits at all and no weight loss stuff that I could find. So clearly this is silliness. There is simply no good evidence that alkaline water does anything other than drain your wallet and anyone who would tell you otherwise likely has ulterior motives. It's true that there is no downside to drinking this stuff, and there's no evidence that it is unsafe in any way, but the same can be said for plain old regular water, and last I checked, that costs a lot less. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or alternatively, you can join the private Facebook group, TriDoc Podcast is what it's called, 
go over there, apply for uh, admission, and I will grant you uh, admission very quickly after answering a couple of very easy questions. And you could submit your uh, questions there and join the conversation on podcast-related topics. My guest today on the podcast is Didi Griesbauer. Didi has been in multi-sport as a professional for more than a dec- for more than two decades now. But before that, she was a high-achieving swimmer in a high school and then at Stanford University. She set records, captured her, captained her team to a national championship, and won all manner of individual awards. She was a gold medalist at the Pan American Games in 1991 and narrowly missed being a member of the 1992 U.S. Olympic team when she placed fifth in the backstroke at the Olympic trials. In 1994, after retiring from swimming, she pursued her MBA and worked as a Wall Street trader for eight years, making Didi the fourth high-achieving professional career woman that I've had the pleasure to speak to with very, re- with very recently, who then decided to give that up and pursue a career as a professional triathlete. Since making that fateful decision, Didi has gone on to have a remarkable career that continues to this very day. She has three Ironman wins to her name, three top 10 finishes at Kona, a world record in the 12-hour time trial riding almost 260 miles and beating all of the men on that day as well, another world record at Ultraman Florida, numerous podium finishes in 70.3 races around the world, and even last year at age 50, won a PTO-supported half Ironman race. As if that wasn't enough, she is part of the Ironman live event announcing team and is continuing to race professionally during her 52nd trip around the sun. She's age 51, but I have managed to get her to slow down just long enough to sit down with me for a few minutes virtually and talk to me about as much as this as we can fit in over the next half an hour or so. Didi, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me. It's a pleasure to have you here on the TriDoc podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, it's great to meet you and, uh, and I'm happy to be here. So uh, you've had, uh, as I mentioned, a remarkable career. Uh, as you sit here today, what are some of the things that you look back on and think, wow, I, I can't believe I, I did that? Um, well, the first would be the day I quit my job to do this. Yeah, hmm. I, I sit there and say, wow, I can't believe I did that many times. Um, <laughs> it was a bit of a, a leap of faith, I suppose. Um, and honestly, at the time when I did it, I thought it would be for a year or two. I thought it would be this funny story. I'd tell my friends in a bar about that crazy time I quit my job to become a professional triathlete. And here I am, um, nearly 20 years later, um, and, and still, still doing it. So, um, you know, I think that the biggest surprise was that I, I did it, uh, because it was, I guess, kind of a, a crazy thing to do to pitch my otherwise well-paying job to become a professional triathlete. But then, um, I mean, obviously, you know, certain events have been special and lots of friends made and, and, and memories I'll take with me, but just the longevity of my career, I think also is something that I'm extremely proud of. So yeah, it's, it's been a good ride and it's still going. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned you're the fourth, uh, woman who has a similar story. Uh, I, I've spoken with, uh, Heather Fuhr, Sky Munch and Laura Siddle previously, all of whom were, really well-established career women and all of whom just found that they had this uh, ability to perform well in endurance sport, especially triathlon, and all of whom took this kind of 
leap of faith. I'm curious, uh, in speaking to the other three, uh, definitely Heather kind of walked away thinking I might be back. Uh, Sky, not at all. Sky was like, no, I'm going to succeed and I am going to uh, be a very successful professional, which I thought was amazing. Laura seemed also to think that she had it in her to, to succeed. It sounds like you kind of were more like Heather, where you thought, you know, I'm going to keep the seat warm, keep my cubicle <laughs> open just in case. Uh, where do you think uh, you kind of came down on that? Well, I, you know, the, the whole idea came from you know, my very first coach in the sport was Karen Smyers, um, who is just legendary. And she is still one of my dearest friends. And uh, I was doing a training session at her house. We were riding trainers um, in her, you know, pain cave, so to speak. And she just kind of looked over at me in the middle of the session and she said, would you ever consider quitting your job and racing professionally? She said, I think you'd be really good at it. And I think I had my answer right away because it was just this just gut reaction that I didn't even think. I just said, yes. Like I said, yes. Like everything in my body was like, yes, that is, that is, I want to do that. Um, I had to get my husband on board, which was actually equally as easy. Um, I, I, I warmed him up with a couple of glasses of wine and then I said, (laughs) Hey, you know, Karen said the funniest thing to me tonight. She, she suggested I quit my job and race professionally. And he sobered up immediately and he looked at me and he said, if you do not go in and quit your job tomorrow, I will quit it for you. Um, and so I, I really, I had his support. Um, I didn't quit my job to become a professional triathlete because I thought I was going to win Kona or be world champion or be the greatest pro ever. Um, I think my, my swimming career at Stanford humbled me in a lot of ways. Um, I was a good swimmer. Um, as you mentioned, I, I, along with my team, I'm the three-time NCAA champion. I'm the Pan American Games gold medalist, Pan Pacific Games gold medalist, ranked as high as sixth in the world in the 200 backstroke, uh, narrowly missed two Olympic teams. But I walked away from Stanford feeling really average because of the company I kept. So it was really humbling to swim with women who had so many gold medals that I, I couldn't even count them. So I, I didn't have this athletic confidence in myself that I was something special. I really had always thought I was something quite mediocre, but I just loved the sport of triathlon and I really wanted to give it a try. So yeah, I, I thought it would be a fun adventure. And I, I, what drew me to triathlon in the first place was I just wanted to see if I could do it. I saw the Ironman on TV and I thought, I wonder if I can do that. And I think when Karen said, would you quit your job and race professionally? I just thought, I wonder if I could do that. And and it was this sort of more curiosity rather than confidence. It was a curiosity to see if I could rather than a confidence knowing that I could. I, I really like that because uh, that to me is how if if I ever was so imbued with that kind of talent, I think that's how I would approach it. <laughs> I, I marvel at Sky and Laura who both had this this sense that no, this is, I'm good at this. I'm going to succeed. I, I've never had that. And, uh, listening to you, I, I think even with all of your talent and all of your successes, uh, to, to sort of have your feet on the ground and, and see it as I'm going to do this cause I love it and we'll see what happens is probably, you know, <laughs> it, how I would approach it too. So I, I really respect that. I yeah. I mean, I admire that. I admire the people with confidence that say, you know, I'm going to be a world champion one day. It's really hard to be a world. It's really hard to be an Ironman champion. Like it's hard. It's a hard, hard sport. Um, so I, I, I think I had a certain belief in myself. I had a, a belief in my work ethic, right? I've always had a really strong work ethic. And, and I think to the point where, 
because I've been in situations where I've been made to feel mediocre, whether it's by coaches making offhand comments or because of the, as I said, at Stanford, the company that I kept, I was swimming with the best in the world and it makes you feel, you know, rather average. I've always admired those people that are like, yeah, I'm going to be the best. And I'm like, well, I'm amongst the best and that's going to help me raise my game. But it's always been my work ethic and my desire for more than I think I'm capable of. And, and it's brought me to some pretty incredible places. That's great. Um, all right. It's a slightly different question. As you look back over this long career, uh, what are the things that you look back on the most fondly? And those aren't always wins. Those are sometimes things that have just happened to you that that you just remember as being things that, I don't know, resonated with you somehow. Uh, obviously, you know, I, I, I'm privileged to, this is my second athletic career, right? I, I had a very long history um, as a swimmer. Um, and so I really feel like it's a gift to have gotten this sort of second athletic career in my life. And not dissimilarly to the first, the, the thing I remember most and the thing that I actually took from my swimming career and has made me, I think, a better, more balanced triathlete. You know, when I was a swimmer, I used to wear bad workouts like a hair shirt. Like I'd miss a, a repeat by a tenth of a second and the rest of the day was just miserable. Like, oh, I suck and I'm terrible and I hate this and blah, blah, blah. And just beat myself up when in having some distance from my swimming career, I don't remember times. I don't remember like specific meets or even where I placed or, and even my friends who are all Olympians and medalists and everything. I know some of them have some medals. I don't know how many they have and what color they are and, and what events they were in. I just know who was a good friend and a good teammate. Um, and so I think when I eventually walk away from my triathlon career, I'm going to remember the good training partners and the the good competitors, um, the honest competitors, the ones that went out and gave their all and did so with just such a great attitude. I'm going to remember the people um, and the experiences rather than, well, I, I won this and I was second here and yada, yada. The, the times and the places. I, I had a coaching client actually ask me what my PR was in a 70.3. And I honestly have no idea. Like the times... They, they're irrelevant to me. Um, and yes, the, the, the memories of certain races and, and winning certain races or, you know, even overcoming certain struggles with, you know, injuries or setbacks or, um, you know, muggings pre-race, had that happen too. Um, you know, overcoming obstacles is definitely something to be proud of. But I think the thing that I'm going to remember are, are the people, um, the people that have just left an impression on my life um, forever. Um, yeah, I think that's called maturity and wisdom. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so, I mean, let's face it. I, I, I hesitate to use the word old or well, age, you can, but it's, hey, I mean, shoe fits, man, I'll wear it. Uh, it's okay. Well, but it doesn't. I, I mean, I'm a little bit, uh, uh more advanced chronologically than you are. We're, uh, we're contemporaries. So I, I don't feel old. Uh, I'm sure you don't either. Uh, but that being said, we are, older in the sport, uh, you specifically in the professional ranks. So I'm curious, what do you think has been the key to your ability to succeed as a professional for as long as you have and being, let's face it, older than most of your peers? Yeah, all of my peers. I'm the oldest pro on the planet, male or female. Um, yeah, 
Uh, I got Cameron Brown by like 18 months and I'm going to keep going as long as he keeps going. Cause he's not, he's not going to beat me. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I love what I do. Um, and, and there are certainly days I wish I didn't love it so much, but I, I just love what I do and I don't want to do anything else. And you couple that with a willingness to work as hard, if not harder than anyone, I'm willing to do the extra things that I have to do now as a 51-year-old that I didn't have to do at 36, even 40, even 45. Um, I'm willing to put in that work to keep doing what I need to do so that I can keep doing this because I just love it that much. Um, and that's really it. I mean, people want to know, like, what's the special sauce? Where's the fairy dust? What, what, what is the one thing? And it's, it's, it really isn't one thing. It's, it's so, the answer is so boring um, that the question almost offends me. Like I, I work my butt off and I have ever since, look, I'm not going to walk away from a strong six figure salary <laughs> for a $0 salary for something that I'm not super passionate about. And, and I've carried the passion that I had and the excitement that I have for the sport from the day I quit my job on Wall Street to this day, I just, I love what I do. And I think that carries me even the days that, that, that sort of, sort of rock me to my core and bring me to the ground, um, in terms of how challenging they are or the setbacks that I faced, it makes me want it all that much more. Uh, at the risk of offending you, I'm going to push back just a touch. Uh, cause I will say, um, look, I I'm, I'm 55 this year. I continue to see faster times. Now, part of that is because I only got into the sport in my 30s. Um, and I only got serious about the sport probably in the last six years or so. So I've really only been training consistently and training well for six or seven years. So that's probably why I continue to see improvements. Um, now, you have been pushing yourself super hard and doing exceedingly well for 20 years. Um, I, I, there's no, I, I don't think there's a special sauce. I don't, I, I don't think that, but I know myself. I mean, I compare myself now to 10 years ago and I have to make some modifications. I can't have back-to-back -back super hard workouts. Uh, there must be something that you see changing uh, in your own body and in your own ability to train. And so I'm just curious you're still able to perform at the, the same level um, as a professional. So how have you adapted? How have you managed to stay at this super high level um, despite the fact that, look, the clock works against us, let's face it? Yeah, no, the clock is definitely working against us. But I think what you and I are both proving is that you can be successful. You know, it bugs me when people say age is just a number because it's not. It's very, very real. Age is a real, real thing. But I think what I'm attempting to prove is that you can be successful in spite of it. Um, some of the things that I've done, probably the number one weakness in my um, career athletically, both as a swimmer and a triathlete, has been my nutrition. Um, and it was about five or six years ago um, – one of my doctors basically highlighted exactly how much it was hurting me. And, and I, at that point I got super serious. Well, I got more serious about trying to address that. Um, and it wasn't until the start of 2020, it was right after Ultraman when I had had some nutritional struggles during that event that 
I found a nutritionist and and when I say I've worked with probably 20 over my career, it's it's not an exaggeration and I finally found one that makes sense to me and one that I can work with and that's made a big deal. I've gotten a lot more serious about my nutrition not only day to day but fueling the workouts. Um that has helped me and that is a detail that we all sort of give lip service to, but I finally got really serious about it and I think that has helped me tremendously. It's helped me touch wood stay healthier. Um, which has improved my consistency in training. And as we know, this sport is not about knocking the cover off the ball one day and then resting on the couch for the next four or five. It's about showing up every day and being consistent. And I think improving my nutrition has uh, improved my ability to be consistent in training. Um, I think our move to Boulder, Colorado, we've lived here for uh, almost nine years now. And I think that change of environment, I came from Boston, which is a wonderful city. We loved it there. And I have great, great dear friends there. But moving to a place like Boulder, Colorado, where the community embraces the athletic lifestyle, I'm surrounded by brilliant people. My strength coach is a very important part of my team. Um, I've been very serious about gym work for a number of years um, and finding a good strength coach that can keep me healthy and strong and strong in the right ways um, and, and mobile in the right ways and, and someone who is just smarter than I am when I come to that. I treat my gym work as, as with the same emphasis that I treat swim, bike, and run. Um, it is as important to me as those other sessions. Um, that's been something that I put tremendous focus on. And then the final thing that... <laughs> My friends and training partners make fun of me. I, I go to sleep earlier than most toddlers. Like, don't try to talk to me after 6.30 at night because I'm in bed asleep by 7. And we'll, well sleep 9, 10 hours a night. <laughs> okay. Well, you've got me there because I have kids and there's no freaking way I'm getting that amount of sleep. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, you're preaching to the choir on everything else you've mentioned. I mean, I think as we get older, we have to recognize that we can't train the same way. And so we have to maximize all of these other things, strength work, nutrition, recovery, all of those things have to be maximized so that we can optimize the training that we can do and make sure that we maintain our ability to perform at the highest level. And you clearly have done that. I, 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 I can't agree with you enough on the sleep issue. I, I just, unfortunately, my job and my family are such that it's not a possibility. Uh, I also know that as we get older, sleep is problematic uh, for a lot of us. Um, you're very fortunate in that you're able to maintain that kind of sleep cycle, uh, you know, at our age. So kudos to you for that. Um, you know, I talk about how you're an outlier, but the reality is, is you're not. Uh, more and more, we're seeing older professionals. Uh, yep. You mentioned Cam Brown. Uh, I've mentioned Laura Siddle. Uh, she's, uh, you know, about a decade younger, but she's still, you know, uh, older than a lot of the, you know, 20 year olds. Um, and we're seeing more and more, we're seeing uh, the age of professionals kind of creep up and, and, uh, part of that is because they're getting a later start sometimes, like Laura came to the sport a little bit later. Uh, but then, you know, a lot of them are, are just staying around. Craig Alexander stayed around for a while. Jan Frodeno is pushing 40 and, do, and doesn't seem to show, except for his recent injury, unfortunately, not, not showing really much signs in the way of slowing down. Um, do you think this is a new trend? Do you think that we're going to see pros be able to stick around longer? Or do you think that it's going to be the select few uh, who are able to do it? Well, we see it across all sports, right? You look at Tom Brady, you look at, you know, the, the, the season of the senior athlete, I think, is, is upon us. And I think you see it across all sports where 
you can be successful at an older age than you ever would have imagined a decade or two ago. I think with our sport, it's a it's a double-edged sword because yes, we do see people paving the way, right? Once you've seen it done, well, if she can do it, so can I. If he can do it, so can I. So there are people that are paving the way and setting that example for what is possible. Um, but the flip side of our sport is with the um, birth of new race series, um, new a new professional ranking system, I think encourages and almost forces a, a race season that is almost unsustainable. So you see people um, in this past year, particularly women racing back from maternity leave so that their world ranking doesn't suffer. Um, you see people feeling pressured to race so that they maintain their world ranking or so that they get invited to the Collins cup or so that they are still relevant to their sponsors. And I think that pressure to race more and because racing is at a higher level, I also think you're seeing a lot more people at a lot younger ages facing these horrible, almost chronic injury cycles that they can't get out of because the pressure to race frequently and at a very high level is, is immense right now. So, you know, it's, I'm curious to see where it goes because I think there are those of us that are proving you can be successful at an older age, but I'm, I'm not a top 20 ranked pro, right? Like I'm barely in the top 100 and I can't chase PTO points because it's, it's just not feasible for someone my age. So is that ultimately going to make me irrelevant with where the sport is going? Possibly. Um, so yes, it, it is possible to, to race, but with the way, the direction that racing is going, I also think people are going to burn brighter, but then burn out faster. Yeah. And that's a recurring theme in some of my conversations. I talked to uh, Heather Fuhr. I mentioned Mark Allen, uh, Dave Scott. They've all mentioned the same thing with, uh, you know, it, it's been it's kind of like you said, the double-edged sword of the success of our sport with yep. more and more races and more and more pressure to do those races. You know, back in the days of Mark and Dave, you know, they, they had five races to do over the course of the year, uh, Heather, same thing. And, and so it was much easier to train for those four or five races, or even if they only did two or three and, and you had a lot more time for recovery, a lot less likelihood of becoming injured. I mean, what Mark, raced 12 times in Kona in a row, I think, or something yeah. like that. I mean, yeah. they almost never missed it because they didn't have these injury issues. And now, as you mentioned, because of the, just the ferocity of the schedule and the pressures, like you said, with sponsorship and everything else, uh, it's certainly understandable. I, I hope that there's a balance to be made somehow because it, it would be nice to see careers extended. Um, but I guess time will tell. Um, I'm curious also from your lengthy time in the sport, what are some of the things that you look at and see have made the most impact in terms of the things that you've come across over these last 20 years, uh, you know, in terms of maybe technology or in terms of uh, just changes within the sport itself, uh, things that you kind of think of as being, Wow, this this really these were really game changers for a triathlon. Oh, I think that just the sports science in general, um, how much smarter people have gotten about training. It's not necessarily, and and it's funny because I see it in swimming too, right? I I was a at the height of my swim career in the eighties and early nineties when we were swimming, you know, hundred thousand. Um, meter weeks in training for a race that for me lasted less than two minutes. So it was all about 
this really, really high volume and training a ton. And I think, you know, you look at swim training now, it's not nearly that kind of mileage that's much more about strength and power and, and, you know, quote unquote, cross training, becoming a, a stronger athlete. Uh, I think in triathlon, you're seeing that as well, a lot with, um, you know, particularly the Norwegians who you constantly see getting, you know, testing blood lactate levels in, in the middle of training and just getting smarter about the execution of their training rather than just saying more is better, more is better, more is better. The, the more you can train, the faster you're going to be. And that's not necessarily the case. I think we're just seeing athletes and coaches get smarter and that's super, super exciting for the sport. And it's making, it's making people faster. Yeah. And are there things that you look back on that have gone away? Maybe, uh, I don't know, races that have disappeared or the style of uh, triathlon or anything that you look back on that you wish would come back? Yeah, I get a little bit nostalgic for um, sort of the intimacy of the sport. I mean, there was a time early in my career where I would reach directly out to a race director and say, hey, I'm interested in doing your race. Um, If I can be helpful, like at a kid's event or you know, uh, a pre-race swim session to get familiar with the course, or how can I be helpful to you um, and your race? How can I promote your race? And in turn, hey, can you get me a homestay? Or, you know, there was that, there was that intimate relationship between the race organizers and the athletes themselves. And I think the personality of the races, I mean, I remember uh, Timberman uh, was a local race for me when I was in Boston, and it used to be great. They had this wonderful lobster bake after the event, and families would be there. They'd have like bouncy houses for the kids and climbing walls and stuff, and up at the the ski mountain. Um, and that's sort of disappeared a little bit. And I think that's why I I fell in love so instantly with Ultraman because Ultraman is still very much that way. It's very about the Ohana and literally every morning before the race, we have like all the competitors get together for what is effectively a group hug. And the first, the first day everyone's like, Oh dude, this is creepy. This is weird. And by day three, we're like, yeah, group hug, group hug. Yes. It's group hug time. Um, and, and that sort of intimacy and immediate bond with those people that you're racing with, I think is missing. And that's just, that's due to the growth, right? I mean, in, in order to have the growth, you need it to be, you need to be able to roll into a venue, roll out this race, have the event, roll it up and have it disappear within 24 hours and, and move on to the next. And, and the growth is tremendous, but some of that personality, personalization and intimacy is missing. And I, I do miss that. Um, but the growth is, the growth is tremendous. And, and I'm proud of the sport um, for the opportunities that it's giving to so many more people because there's so many more opportunities to race. Yeah. I, I mean, a group hug with, Five, four or 5,000 people would be tough, but it uh, doesn't mean you can't do it in little small groups. Um, <laughs> I love that idea of the group hug before the Ultraman. My gosh, it must be hard on day, what is it, five-day event, three-day event? It's a, it's a three-day event. Yeah, it's a oh, three-day event. Uh, well, uh, Didi, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on the podcast and sharing with me some of these, uh, great stories and great insights on your, uh, very long and, uh, uh, just a tremendous professional career in, uh, the sport, as well as, uh, your, uh, very successful career as a swimmer. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast and, uh, I wish you nothing but success for uh, the continuation of your professional career. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. 
You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, you can send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or you can join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group, which can be done by simply answering a couple of very easy questions. I grant you admission. You can join the conversation with other podcast listeners there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit trydoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.